Welcome back to part two um, of this podcast. Um, again, I'm, sh- I'm joined by Mark and I'm joined by Anna. Um, and in, hopefully you've listened to the first part of the podcast, which was uh, part one of the Guillain-Barre syndrome. Um, and we covered looking at the epidemiology. We looked at the way it can present. And then Anna and Mark teased us with what investigation might look like. And that's where we're going to pick this back up today. So, Let's let's imagine then it's Friday because it is Friday, so that's easy for us to imagine. And we've got a patient that's presented with that kind of ascending um, sort of paresthesia and, and and now some weakness. Um, and they've just in fact just before we get to investigation, Mark, just in terms of that bulbous symptoms that we've that we've mentioned, if we see the bulbous symptoms. Is it telling us that it's something different or that it's likely to be GBS with bulb involvement? Does does that matter in, in terms of the way that's presenting? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think context, isn't it? And, and history is everything. So I think, you know, if we've got a good story that this is a uh, what we think is a, a peripheral problem and it, and it sounds like GBS from that point of view and the examination fits, I think if, if we then see some bulba and respiratory symptoms then you know we're, we're going to think this still fits the picture but obviously we're going to be worried okay okay so let's say they've got some oh in fact i'm going to give two different scenarios so let's say the first scenario is they haven't got any of those things that maybe worry us a bit more um so um if i come maybe to i'll come to mark first so mark in terms of investigations if that patient if i'm ringing you on a friday and go mark i've got a patient with you know this this kind of syndrome that feels like it's gbs but i haven't got at the moment respiratory involvement i've not got bulb involvement um what are you going to be telling me i need to i guess what would be the investigations but I guess what's going to lead the investigations is what are the sort of other differentials that I'm going to need to start excluding. OK, so, I mean, in you know, I think the first thing to say is, you know, this is a clinical diagnosis. Um, there are other differentials. We've we've talked about excluding things like spinal cord pathology, which is which are on the list and particularly in the, in the context of cancer. Um, I mean. I would think about excluding some other things by by you know on bloods i.e excluding some other causes of sort of neuropathy i think if this is presenting as a kind of an acute onset weakness in this way it's most likely to be a sort of gear and barry type thing but there are other tests you know you would want to send for for neuropathy so you know things like glucose and esr and fbc b12 etc but we're not thinking that's likely to be that helpful or likely to kind of provide an alternative explanation. So I think the clinical diagnosis, you know, when you see it in the right context, you can be pretty certain that's what it is. And then the other investigations are really trying to support that diagnosis. So so hopefully, you know, with the MR scan of the spine, that's going to exclude an alternative pathology. And then what you really need to do is, is a lumbar puncture. And again, safety of lumbar puncture you know, some people will do different things. Some people will scan the head in this instance and some people won't just to exclude, just to make sure it's safe to do it. I mean, in the context of cancer, again, you want to exclude there's not some other, you know, mass lesion that's going to contraindicate a lumbar puncture. So a quick CT scan in the context of someone kind of just having some peripheral symptoms, but no bulbar involvement would seem reasonable before doing the lumbar puncture. 
Um, and then the lumbar puncture itself, you know, we talked in the last podcast um, about what we might request. So just to kind of recap on that. So we're asking, we, we always want to measure an opening pressure. So that's always important. Um, measuring the protein, the cell count, the microscopy and the culture, which will follow from that. The glucose, but always with a paired sample. Um, cytology in this instance because of the cancer and oligoclonal bands may be helpful, but I'm going to get that result back straight away. I wondered if you could tell us, so because this came up in a case that we discussed recently about opening pressures, and I have to be honest, I can't remember why we do it, what it tells us, and why if we didn't do it, it might be unhelpful. So maybe just the idiot's guide to opening pressures? Yeah, so I mean, any neurologist likes an opening pressure. Um, so the no normal range for opening pressures, this is the important thing about this, I guess, is doing it properly. So if you've got a manometer, if you can find one, uh, make sure it's done in the left lateral position. Otherwise, you can't interpret the pressure. And then the normal range is somewhere between about 12 and 25 centimetres of water. Um, so it, it's I mean, I guess it's more important in sort of other conditions that we want to kind of expect a high pressure and wouldn't necessarily expect a high pressure in Guillain-Barre syndrome. But I think it's important to do it anyway. Um, and then before I got cut off, I don't know if you carried, I don't know if you mentioned this, Anna, but about the, the results of the CSF and the albuminocytologic dissociation that we might expect to find. So in normal GBS, there's this thing called albuminocytologic dissociation, which I think was described about 100 years ago, where you get this discrepancy between the protein and the cell count. So you get you, you expect to find an elevated protein, but with a kind of normal white count. So that's very typical of, of kind of normal immune mediated uh, Guillain-Barre syndrome albeit there is a caveat that the white count can be ele elevated but normally you'd expect this difference between a high protein and low white count now it says there's some suggestion in the literature that if this is due to immunotherapy you are more likely to have a kind of lymphocytic pleocytosis in the csf i.e a, a raised white count and a raised lymphocyte count in the csf so that that might help you discriminate between you know, a kind of normal GBS and immunotherapy GBS. I know we had a, talked about a case recently where the patient also had Campylobacter and was also treated with immunotherapy. So it might help you discriminate. But there are some caveats there that you can have a raised white count in a normal GBS and you can have a normal white count in an immunotherapy GBS. Just to complicate matters. OK. And, and then, Mark, back to the kind of thorny subject of neurology, antibodies, them taking a while. You know, are we sending any autoantibodies here? And if so, which ones? And then, again, nerve conduction studies is something that neurologists love, or it appears to me they love them. Um, are they useful here? Why are they useful? How can they help? Yeah. So, First question, the antibodies. I would say yes. So Anna alluded to it earlier. We normally send these things called anti-gangliocide antibodies. Now, again, you're not going they're not going to come back quickly, so it's not going to change what you do. Um, and the literature suggests that, you know, the 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 it, the kind of the proportion of people with immunotherapy-induced GB like GBS-like presentation. Um, the number of those where you have a positive antibody is actually less than a normal GBS. So they're going to take a while to come back. They're likely to be negative anyway. But probably send them. And you can think about sending antineuronal antibodies because of the kind of possible cancer association. Um, 
And then the second question was about nerve conduction studies. Yeah. Um, yes, neurologists do kind of love them, I suppose. Um, if we take in the context again, this is a Friday. Uh, depending on when it is on a Friday, you may get some nerve conduction studies <laughs> if you've got a very helpful neurophysiologist. But again, it's not going to change what you do because this is a clinical diagnosis. You still think the patient's got a GBS-like presentation. And it can also be normal if done in the very acute stage. So a normal set of nerve conduction studies still shouldn't put you off the diagnosis because they can be normal to begin with. And in which case you might want to repeat them after a week or so to see whether there's been a change. And I guess the importance of the nerve conduction studies, as we said earlier, Guillain-Barre syndrome is kind of subdivided further into this acute inflammatory demyelinating polyneuropathy and then these acute axonal neuropathies. And there's just a difference, mostly about prognosis, actually, because if you've got a demyelinating neuropathy, you actually have a better outcome than if you have an axonal neuropathy because of the fact your myelin can come back again, whereas axons are a little bit uh, slower in their recovery. Okay, that's really useful. So, Anna, then maybe to you. So, in terms of if this patient seem to have more of a respiratory compromise and again let's say that you haven't got access to a, a mark on tap what are you would you be getting lung function or would you be how would you be assessing lung function how would you be assessing you know breathing capacity if you haven't got access to a, a mark to chat this through what would your sort of job in oncology team do um, if they've got a patient who's got similar symptoms but it feels like there's some respiratory compromise so I think this is this is the one area that I've actually had to buy kit for since starting being an immunotherapy um, toxicity person because um, it's actually really difficult. It's really difficult to get the formal lung function tests on the same day for any reason, really. Um, also, you know, cancer patients aren't necessarily always in an acute hospital setting. They're sometimes in a cancer centre setting um, and actually sort of having bedside spirometry available is actually really important. Um, and and it's one of the and so we now have we we have got bedside spirometers so that patients can track their their own um, lung function and how that changes. And it's the as I say, it's the one thing we've really invested in because I think it's really helpful and really important in terms of that trying to get a feel for the speed of progression whether this is whether this is changing whether this is advancing whether you need to be more worried about the patient whether you need to start thinking about respiratory support ventilation um so actually it's i think it's really quite key um and i and i have to say in the in the patients that have had guillain barre like syndrome from io certainly respiratory involvement is something that certainly happens um and and something that i'm very acutely aware of partly because they do always present on a friday and i'm going into a weekend and um one of the things actually just recently we've actually written a protocol for this so that um our nurses know how to manage this and and we we self-educate the patients to do their own bedside testing so it's it's something that we've had to really think about in terms of um, immunotherapy toxicity that hadn't really darkened the oncological door prior to it to be honest okay that's really useful and mark is there a role for sort of doing bedside sort of spirometry again i'm i'm, I'm remembering back and 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 the role of doing fev1s is that something that we we would be doing in this context if we've got a patient like this uh yeah definitely so hopefully every neurology ward has got a kind of handheld spirometer and it's normally the only one in the hospital so we kind of guard it with our lives because people try and nick it all the time. But yeah, so a handheld spirometer and the main kind of indicator to be measured is a, is a forced vital capacity. So things like peak flow are not 
are not great for monitoring. So that's usually the only measure that we use as a forced vital capacity. And obviously, you want to kind of make sure the patient's sat up and they're giving a good effort. We normally kind of ask them to do it three times or so to get a good average. Um, and we kind of use a cutoff. I mean, I, I would say for any of these patients, just as a kind of practical point, who are presenting, you think you've got Guillain-Barre syndrome because of the fact they might deteriorate, because of the fact also it's Friday in our scenario, it's worth giving the intensive care department a ring. Even if the patient hasn't got respiratory involvement, just say, look, we've got a patient who we think has got Guillain-Barre syndrome. They're OK at the moment. Can they just be on your radar? Because it helps them plan. They might come and see the patient. They might think about bed space. You know, and they might call you back later to say, well, how's that patient doing? And we're kind of looking, we normally use on the FVC, kind of around about a cutoff of two. Um, kind of above that, you know, you're still going to be monitoring, but kind of two-ish, you're kind of worrying, well, maybe this is dropping. And it's all to do with, Anna says, sort of the trend of these things. So if you're seeing any sort of trend downwards, it's going to, you know, get you a bit worried. Um, but yeah, definitely bedside monitoring, 100%. Okay. There's a couple of things, though, just I, I, so I would completely agree about getting ITU involved, particularly as we're now treating different patients across a, across a very wide um, sort of disease spectrum. And so actually trying to explain where they're up to in cancer treatment and what their prognosis and things is when they're acutely unwell and they've, they're, they're losing respiratory function and you need to ventilate them. That is not the time to be having a conversation with critical care. The time is to have a conversation beforehand, even to say not really expecting you to need to do anything. But if you do, then you've at least heard this person's name before. So I, I absolutely, um, I think that's probably one of the most important things. And hopefully you'll never need it, but it's actually just a really important conversation to have. And it's much easier to have when you've not got an acutely deteriorating person sat in front of you. So I think that's really important. The, the other thing is about patient technique and, and doing this. Um, so actually, you know, spending some time and, and explaining to a patient how to do this and, and, and making sure that they've got good technique and consistent technique, because otherwise you're, inter you're comparing apples and pears. So it's really key. And so that's why I think it's really important to train, train the patient as well as the, the nursing or support you know or, or doctoring team because actually then the patient knows how they're doing it if it's if it's sort of a passive thing as much as possible actually you get really big variation because it depends on whether the person's got experience in, in showing personnel to do this so patient education and the fact that they have to be sat up in the same way they have to you know they have to prepare themselves they have to know what they're doing means you get consistency of results so you're not inappropriately interpreting a drop and the other thing is just be really wary about waking people up overnight unnecessarily because their, their respiratory function drops because you exhaust them and they get really tired so it's a case of getting that balance right between making sure you're monitoring things regularly enough to, to notice a drop it's absolutely fine to do a, a spirometry test if they clinically deteriorate but I really don't advocate waking a patient up unless you're seeing a significant drop or you're concerned sort of throughout the night because otherwise you end up with an exhausted patient that actually then gets get, has a worse outcome so there's this I think because again because it, they tend to fall under the oncology um, setting at least to start with this is very scary for, for oncologists this isn't something they see very regularly there's a, there's a lot of nervousness about these patients normally quite appropriately and so you kind of want to keep prodding them to make sure they're all right and in prodding them to make sure they're all right they become less good because they're exhausted so we just have to be really careful about sort of clarity of when how frequently um, and what to do with that information because that's the other thing you know what drop are we worried about when do you want to get a doctor to review them when do you want to think about escalating them to ITU all those things laid out ahead of time just I think makes the whole thing much more smooth and actually you can hope that you never need it but it's worth doing it particularly again in the scenario if you're doing it at the beginning of a weekend and you've got Saturday and Sunday to get through unless you want to spend quite a lot of time in the hospital. <laughs>
Great. Okay. Mark, just one final question on investigation. So we're getting to management. Um, is there any role for doing blood gases um, for these patients? You know, you've talked about force vital capacity. It, again, I, I just simply don't know the answer. Should we be doing blood gases or not? Yeah, good question. I mean, we don't do them regularly. ITU might ask for them as an indicator. So, so you, you may you may do it, but it's not normally used as a kind of monitoring for respiratory function. Because clearly, if you do a gas and, you know, the CO2 is up anyway, you're a bit too late and probably that patient needs ventilating anyway. So, yeah, there's not, uh, we don't do it. I don't know don't know if you have experienced that, Anna, but I, I wouldn't say that's a, a, a normal thing for a neurology department to do, mon- you know, regular blood gases to monitor respiratory function. I, I think it's interesting. So different different neurologists I've spoken to about this advise different things, which is quite interesting. So I certainly agree I wouldn't do it. You know, you worry about getting into the habit of doing sort of four hourly gases. Absolutely not that. Um, I think, you know, if patients are starting to look like they're, they're struggling, you're seeing a significant drop, knowing if they are hypercapnic, I think can be quite useful. But I wouldn't do it as serial monitoring. Um, but often if I've got a patient who I think is going to go to ITU, they'll, as you say, I think it's that it just kind of adds sort of that that picture of um, where they're up to in terms of their respiratory failure or whether there's a you know where what's going on so I think they do have their use but not as a serial measurement um I, I think you go clinically and, and bedside spirometry as a as a marker and then and then I would normally do a gas if I think they're significantly deteriorating yeah I'd okay. agree with that yeah that's really useful. That's really useful. OK, so I'm just going to summarise this session and then we'll we'll go to the final uh, podcast, which I think is going to be really interesting around management. So just to summarise in terms of where we're up to in terms of investigation, you know, I, I think what I'm hearing is that we are going to rule out other things. So make sure there's no core compression, make sure there's no leptomenalgeal disease. We're going to do a lumbar puncture um, and that lumbar puncture may tell us a number of things, uh, but we also might see that that CSF protein being um, uh, excessive relative to the cell count. We're going to send some antibodies, which we won't get back today, and we may or may not be able to get some nerve conduction studies done, but we, we think we should. And force vital capacity is going to be a way for us to monitor it so let's uh, we're going to stop there I think we're clear on investigation and we'll pick up in the next podcast on management